0: this week on making contact this whole tour is about the desecration of the earth and the desecration of
1: women's vaginas we've gotten so far today from talking to each other we are typing to each other
2: women are gaining influence as leaders throughout the world fighting for peace justice the environment and civil society in this program, we profile two American masters of the spoken word, provoking, inspiring, and moving us to action. Eve Vensler, playwright of the hit Vagina Monologues, shares the innovative work of her organization, V-Day, and renowned storyteller Diane Ferlat talks with us about using her art as an international bridge over cultural divides. I'm Sandina Robbins, your host this week on Making Contact. This program is a special collaboration with the Women Rising Radio Series.
0: Rule one, get over that girl thing. This can't be happening to me. When it happens, and trust me, it happens to thousands of us, you will not believe it. You will think these are just crazy soldiers fooling around. They must be bored or something. They couldn't be hurting me, grabbing my legs and rough like this, throwing me into their truck. Your brain will start telling you things. These are soldiers from my own country. They're old enough to be my father. They know better than this. They're they're here to protect me. I went on a vacation for two days. I didn't come back for two years.
2: You've been listening to feminist playwright and activist Eve Ensler on tour for her organization, V-Day reading from her new book, I Am an Emotional Creature, The Secret Life of Girls Around the World. Eve stunned her audience with a story of rape from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and sounded the alarm on the Congo's rape crisis. Eve reflected on the reasons for her Turning Pain to Power tour and introduced Dr. Denis Mukwege, a Congolese surgeon who has healed thousands of women survivors of sexual violence in the Congo's brutal, ongoing war. What this whole tour is about, first of all, it's an educational
0: tour. It's to get the word out about the terrible atrocities that are going on to women's bodies and souls in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and particularly in the East. And it's to educate people as to the reasons why. Looking at the economic war that's been going on there for 12 years, looking at the connection between the plundering of natural resources and the plundering of women's bodies. So it's looking at 6 million dead in the Congo in 12 years, 500,000 women rate. It's looking at numbers that are so astounding, one doesn't even know how to process them. Dr. McGuaghe says he thinks it's between 400 and 500,000, and he's on the ground sewing up 10 to 12 women a day, 3,600 women a year, and he's been doing it for 10 years, and he knows the number of women they aren't able to receive in the bush who are clamoring to get on the ambulances when they arrive there. I think these numbers get so out of control and crazy that we're not thinking about them being real people like Noella, an 8-year-old girl who gets taken by militias, her mother gets taken in one direction, her father in another, her in a third. Her mother is raped. Her father is killed. She gets held for two weeks. She gets raped every day. Everything in the world is shoved inside her from sticks and penises, guns. She gets returned. She's incontinent. She can't hold her pee. She can't be operated on because she's eight years old. She now pees on herself and humiliates herself all the time. So when she goes to school, people laugh at her. That's one little girl's story. There are thousands and thousands of those stories. There is a systematic, planned, strategic attack on women with intent and purpose to destroy the female population and undermine the future of the Congolese people. And when you see something that is that premeditated, you realize how this could actually become the most dominant tactic of war in the future because it's the cheapest. And if we do not demand as citizens as governments as UN bodies as every force that can bring pressure to bear on this that this is intolerable we will see this spread we are already seeing it spread then on another level the tour is about Dr. McGuaghey and I touring the country together and I've been doing V-Day for 11 years we've all been doing V-Day for 11 years we've never had a man as a spokesperson for this movement we've never had a man who has toured America with us, or spoken on the stage with us. And that shift is enormous, because it's actually being with a man who understands men's role in violence against women, who is devoting his life to stopping violence against women and girls, who understands that violence against women and girls will not be stopped unless men play a central role in it. And that aspect of it, for me, has been really remarkable to have met someone like Dr. McGuaghy, who I truly admire and who I'm learning so much from and who inspires me so greatly. and As a matter of fact, we just had a fantastic meeting of V-men, the first V-men, last week. And 35 incredible men flew in from all over America. And we were talking about the word vulnerable as a key word in the V-men's movement, because of course it's the one thing men have been told are not supposed to be. and were they able to be vulnerable, and were we to see that as a real signal of being a man, I think so much in the world would shift very quickly. And then it's looking at that within a context of a larger movement, V-Day, which is a worldwide movement to end violence against women. v came about because when I started doing the vagina monologues, everywhere I went, So many women would line up to tell me their stories, and at first I thought, oh, great, we're going to hear wonderful stories of orgasms and sexual delight and satisfaction, and no. What women were lining up to tell me was how they'd been beaten or raped or battered, and after a few months of this, I said, I'm going to do something about violence, because I had always known there was violence against women. I'm a survivor of violence. I had no idea of the epidemic proportions. I had no idea of femicide. So In 98, I got a group of women friends together, a really great, radical women friends, and we just said, we have this play. How could we use this play to stop violence against women? And we came up with the idea of V-Day, which was Vagina Day, Violence Against Women's Day, Valentine's Day, victory over violence, all good words.
2: Since 1998, the Vagina Monologues has traveled to 120 countries around the world, including several Muslim countries. This year, there will be 4,000 events along with 600 teach-ins on what is happening to women in the Congo. V-Day has raised over $60 million to help women worldwide who are the victims of violent conflict. This year, V-Day expects to bring the fundraising total to $70 million, and the grassroots efforts are growing exponentially.
0: So we've been able to open safe houses In Haiti, we opened the first safe house for battered women. In Kenya, we opened the first two houses to stop female genital mutilation. In Iraq, we've opened three houses for women who are being honor killed. In Congo, we're about to open a huge project called City of Joy, which will be a place for 100 women who are coming from Pansy Hospital, Dr. Mugwege's Hospital, who have suffered enormous atrocities. And the City of Joy will be a healing leadership academy, where we will build them and support them and nurture them so they become the next leaders of the DRC.
2: Vensler's response to the violence in her own family drove her to become a powerful voice for the rights of women and children throughout the world. She believes in the power of words, of language, the proverbial power of the pen to defeat the sword. If I look back, when I started writing and writing obsessively all the
0: time, I was really young, and I think it was the only way I had of communicating to myself what I was witnessing and experiencing as a child. Because I was living in such a violent situation with my father, I couldn't actually process literally in my body what was going on because it was too difficult and too traumatizing. But words and writing gave me a way of giving voice to it so I didn't go insane. So it's not just this empty existential misery. I think you write and you write and you write and then you get to the world and then everybody then becomes interested in putting their standards on it and their goods and their bads and their ups and their downs and if you're going to be a great writer or not a great writer, if you're going to be a successful writer. Of course, we're all susceptible to that.
2: But for me, writing has always been how I survived. Speaking of ups and downs, in her book Insecure at Last, Losing It in Our Security-Obsessed World, Eve speaks to us all about returning to what we love to do, about rescuing the great joy in all of us, about staying authentic and staying honest, in her chapter titled Diving. When I was a child, I loved diving. Diving
0: off, diving in, diving off high stone quarry walls, diving off high diving boards. I loved climbing the long ladder to the top. I loved my sky-blue one-piece bathing suit. I loved how fast and compact I was at 10. I loved practicing the approach. I see now everything is in the approach. How high you get, how focused your attention, how clear your desire for flight and clean entry. I loved my naked, wet feet on the board, loved the three steps, knee up, jump down on the bounce. I loved flying through space and time, loved altering my body in air, loved moving with currents, loved grace, loved flipping sometimes or opening up like a swan, loved entering the water without a trace, this happened very rarely, (laughs) loved the force of the dive pushing me deeper, pushing me under, loved getting out of the water and doing it all, all over again. I loved practicing. I loved coming out of the pool with my hair slick-backed. It made me feel like a water animal. I loved the way the water dripped and fell out of my bathing suit when I walked back to the board. I loved wearing a sweatshirt when I practiced because it made me feel brave. And I loved my diving instructor. He was handsome and angular. His name was Jake. Then there was my father, and it all changed. He would sit in a deck chair by the pool. He called it observing me like I was a storm brewing or some bacteria in a Petri dish or something about to go bad. It made me nervous, him sitting there smoking Lucky Strikes and observing me. It changed the nature of what I was doing. It made me aware of myself. It made me afraid. It made me think about what he was thinking rather than just flying through space. After each dive I would surface from the pool and he would give me a thumbs up, or a thumbs down. Mostly, it was thumbs down. He was so serious, I couldn't mess up. But I did, over and over. I began to dive for his love, for his approval, not for the joy of the jump on the balance or flying through space or making my body do new things. I began to sell my dives, began to see them as hard currency, things that could win my father's affection. It's where I learned to perform high diving girl hooker tricks. I think how I learned then to compare myself to others and compete, how anyone who wanted anything was the proof of what a loser I was. And now I was about to open the good body in Washington, D.C., heart of the empire where government and corporations merge in greed and exploitation, turning the majority of the world into losers. Stupid me to have thought I had something to say in the face of this power and arrogance and privilege. There I was in another empty hotel room, emails coming in every minute from women all over the world with news of continuing violations. I was back on the diving board, rushing my dive, not concentrating, not focused on what I love, looking out another millionth time for his, for the world's, thumbs up, never amounting to anything, never, never being anyone. I stopped fighting it. I dissolved. I became no one. I lay on the floor and I cried and cried. I passed through to the other side, then I passed out. I slept like I have never slept. I slept as if I'd died. The next day, my eyes swollen, I went for a walk in the Capitol. I was so tired and fragile, but there was this lightness, this sweetness in me. I remembered it from long ago. I heard this gentle voice say, "You." are done. You already dove for him. You can live your life now.
2: Go on. We'll return to Women Rising in a moment. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Today's program is a special collaboration with the Women Rising Radio Series, a project of Crown Sephira Productions. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. You can also visit us on the web at radioproject.org. The first African-American Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, has said that we are a nation of cowards on matters of race, with most Americans avoiding candid discussions of racial matters. But there are some, like storyteller and performance artist Diane Ferlat, who skillfully and powerfully bridged the cultural divide between black and white for decades. Listen to Diane's tales of courage and dignity in the face of racial injustice.
1: When I was little, I heard a lot of talking as a child and a lot of singing. I grew up steeped in the oral tradition from the get-go. I remember, of course, going to church every Sunday dressing up in my little penny and my little shiny shoes and my little socks, my little pigtails. My daddy would even braid my hair. My daddy could do everything. Anything a woman could do except giving birth, my daddy could do it. I remember when my daddy first got a car. He was the first one on the block to get a car. And everybody squeezed in to get a ride in my daddy's car. I remember, of course, a lot of the Jim Crow signs, white-only signs, colored-only signs, and I used to ride the bus downtown sometime with my daddy, and he would give me the money to get on the bus. I would get on the bus with my little cute self, <laughs> and I was cute. And I'd drop the money in, and but I had to get off the bus, and I'd walk along the side of the bus to get on in the back of the bus. I went to all-black school. I didn't go to school with white children back then. Jim Crow was just such a terrible situation to live in. And it was really bad for a lot of black people. So black people just started leaving, going north to find a better life, hope, some opportunities. And our landlord where we lived, a Jewish man, told my daddy one day when he went to pay the rent, which he didn't have all of, <laughs> he said, why don't you just keep your money and take your family to California? Don't you have a sister up there? You want to take your family and get a better life for your children. Go to California. So my daddy put us on a train. But every summer, my whole family would drive from California all the way back down to Louisiana. Can you imagine that? Driving thousands of miles across a desert and all that heat in a car with no air conditioning. And we couldn't stop at restaurants either. Get something to eat, we didn't have a lot of money. But my mother, before we left, she would fry chicken. We made sandwiches, we had cookies, we had grapes, we had apples, we had light bread, we had drinks. I mean, the car was stacked up with food, we were on our way to Louisiana. But before we even left and drove out of California, the food was gone. But you know how kids are. Then the argument started. Who ate all the cookies? Well, who ate all the grapes? And my brother tried to blame me.
2: She ate the chips.
1: And my daddy said, Quiet back there. Your kids always eating. But my brother got so hungry, he could spot a restaurant a thousand miles away He'd say, Daddy, can we stop, Daddy? Can we stop and eat? And my daddy would say, Next town, boy. Next town. We got to the next town. Hey, Daddy, there's a place. Can we stop? Can we stop, Daddy? Next town, boy. We can't keep stopping. We'll never get to Louisiana. Well, I don't know what happened. My daddy must have got hungry himself. He finally stopped. I jumped out of the car, ran to the front door of that restaurant, opened the screen door, I was just about to go in and my daddy said get away from that door girl get away from that door can't you read that sign I said what sign and it was a sign outside the restaurant that said white only black people weren't allowed to go in I was 10 years old when that happened and I got very angry what do you mean we can't go in I'm hungry I was so angry I picked up a rock and I was going to chunk it at that sign. And my daddy said, Put that rock down. Don't you pay no attention to that sign. We're going to get something neat. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Don't you worry about that. Now put the rock down. Put the rock down, girl. I threw the rock down and my daddy took me by the hand. And my mama, my brother's right behind us, and my daddy, he led us on the side of that building all the way to the back of the building. It was like 98 degrees outside, and he began to talk faster and faster and faster, like he's upset, and it made me a little nervous. But when my daddy walked through the back door of that restaurant, he had a big smile on his face. He said, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? But I looked around. We had to eat in the kitchen. You thought it was hot outside. You try eating in that hot, hot, hot kitchen. Because all the fans were up front in the restaurant for the white customers. But we sat down at one of those two wooden tables in that kitchen. And I never will forget what happened next. There was a tall, tall, brown-skinned woman, my color skin. She was standing behind the stove. She was the cook. And there was a window behind her that went to the restaurant. And the waitress would call all these orders to her through that window. She would say, eggs over easy, bacon crisp, biscuits. And the cook looked over at me and she saw my lip was poked out and my daddy was trying to calm me down. And the cook said, biscuits not ready yet. Then the cook looked over at me. And she said, don't you worry, baby. I'm going to feed y'all first. So who got the first biscuits that day? We did. But as a little girl, as a little girl, I learned a lot about prejudice. As a little girl, I learned a lot about how people can hate you. and They don't even know you. But I also learned how some people handle it. Because even though my daddy was just as angry as me inside, he wasn't going to let prejudice spoil his day or his meal. All through those years, those Jim Crow years, he was always Mr. Happy. Everybody liked my daddy. Who took time to get to know him? You have to get to know people first. My daddy was just like he liked his eggs, sunny side up. He was always able to keep on the sunny side of life. Because there is the other side. <laughs> that was my daddy. Keep on the sunny side. Always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side.
2: Diane Ferlatt has traveled throughout the world from Austria to New Zealand to Senegal and beyond as a storytelling ambassador from the United States. She has many CDs, including the Grammy-nominated "Wickety Whack, Br'er Rabbit is Back. Diane has also journeyed deep into the history of African-American culture in the tradition of others before her, like writer Zora Neale Hurston. Diane's one-woman show, Sepolo, based on research in the Georgia Sea Islands, toured nationwide and was hailed as a cultural blockbuster. Listening to Diane, you'd think she was born spinning a tale, but not so. Her calling as a storyteller caught her by surprise.
1: I never thought I'd be doing this in a million years. And I grew up in an oral tradition because that's the way things were. But I never thought about storytelling. I never even heard the word storytelling. People just talked about things that mattered, family things, And so this tradition didn't even come back to me until I adopted my son, Joey, who was a little over three and a half years old. He came to me with some stories. And one story was, he was a TV addict. The foster mother put him in front of the TV all day. And so when he came to my house, we had a problem. I'm trying to read bedtime stories to my daughter, who I had first, and my new son. And my daughter was saying, read the story, mama, read the story. And my new son is saying, (laughs) I want to watch TV. And I finally realized I was reading this book to a TV brain. How do you get a TV brain to listen? So, all of that tradition I grew up in all of a sudden came into my mind. And I began to read the story like I was telling it. I began to use pauses, use my voice sound effects changing my face, and becoming the characters. And he was listening like it was live TV. And I thought, ha-ha. <laughs> and I told my stories at the church. And you never know who might be listening. Because when I finished, a lady came up to me and said, excuse me, honey, um, you kind of good. Can you come to my school? I thought, oh, no, 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 honey. I'm just telling for the church. She said, oh, my kids would just love you. You come to my school, we'll even pay you. I said, where's your school? (laughs) Man, I got some stories together, went to her school, and somebody else saw me. And it went on from there. The more I kept doing this, I would see kids with their mouths open, thirsty for a story. Adults standing there listening with their mouths open. I said, there's something to this. The more I kept doing it. We've gotten so far today from talking to each other. We are typing to each other. We are texting each other. So I saw, hmm, maybe it might be a need for this. Because my daddy couldn't even believe this. He kept saying, they pay you to do this? He could not believe it. And here I am, 25 years later, still doing it. I think human beings are wired for stories. And human beings are wired... In similar ways, when it comes to feelings and emotion and needs, that's what makes the good connections between human beings. Yeah. I went to an all white community in the Sierras of California, and I was going to schools, just driving around to different communities. And I went to one school, and it's a small school, and the kids were listening to my stories. And after I finished, they came running up to me so excited. Man, you're so good. You're so, I like your stories. I said, you do? Oh, great. And one little boy stood out. He was about nine, blonde hair, blue eyes. And he came running up to me. Oh, man, you're the greatest storyteller I ever saw. You're so great. Man, how's it feel to be black? All in one breath. (laughs) And so I rubbed my hand and I said, it feels great. And then he gave me this big, tight, tight tight hug. And the teacher clapped her hands and made them line up to go for lunch in the cafeteria. So I'm gathering my things to leave and I walk around the line and I go out toward the front door. And this little kid who's standing in line, he doesn't care about his peers. He doesn't care who's around him or anything. He yells in a loud voice to me at the front door. When I grow up, I'm going to marry you. I go, Wow. (laughs) Did that make a connection or what? And these kids hardly see anybody black at all. It's amazing. I wonder where he is now. He was cute.
2: (laughs) Both Eve Ensler and Diane Ferlat have chosen to speak often and eloquently about things that were supposed to remain hidden. They speak to us, they entertain us, and they draw us into a revelation of the truth. In that way, they remind us of the power and authenticity of language. They help us to understand why revealing the truth is so important. And because they have found their own voices, they inspire us to find our voices. They also remind us that, as the saying goes, an enemy is someone whose story we haven't yet heard. That's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact, These profiles of international changemakers were co-produced with Lynn Feinerman's Women Rising radio series, a project of Crown Sephira Productions. You can learn more about the work of these courageous women at radioproject.org. If you'd like to order a CD of this program, our toll-free number is 800-529-5736. Additional audio courtesy of the World Affairs Council, the Global Philanthropy Forum, Eve Ensler, Tess, Locua Kanza, Diane Ferlat, and Eric Pearson. Stephanie Welch is production engineer, Lisa Rudman, executive director, Peggy Law, founding director, senior producer Tina Rubio, associate director con fam, and I'm your host, Sandina Robbins.